Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. In a series on uh, Philippians about unity in the church and creating a new kind of community, and uh, I didn't tell Henry this, but uh, now I, I, I wish I would have, is uh, let me have you stand again, if you're willing and able, as we read uh, together Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, Let me pray and ask God to bless us as we look a little more in depth at this passage. Let's pray. Father, there are treasure troves of truth in this passage they really are there's so much here and uh, I guess in all the years I've been studying through this I always find something new and I pray for those who are present this morning that they would see something new in this passage that you would speak to us by your spirit and your word and that we would be built up and understand better what you've done for us in salvation would you bless us would you be with us and Lord I I have to pray for me uh, because I have nothing else I have no Uh, eloquence. I have no power in my own personality or my own words. And so I pray that you would be pleased this morning to minister to all who are present by the power of your spirit and the clarity of your word. Would you bless us and would you be with us? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So in the book of Philippians, Paul is talking about a new kind of community. And uh, I typically read the Bible as if it's just about me, just about me personally and Jesus. But uh, Philippians is challenging that because he's not just talking about building a new kind of character in me, but he's talking about building a new kind of community in the world, a new kind of church community, a new, a new humanity. And that's very exciting as we begin to think about it uh, because there's so much brokenness in relationships between people in our world. And uh, I was reminded about this yesterday. I was reading through a book, and so this was not in the notes of, or, you know, that turn it into the week so they can put slides up. Um, it was, I was reading a book, and a missionary was talking about mis- uh, his mission work in, in Mongolia. He and his wife were called there, and this is in the past 20 years. And uh, they arrived in Mongolia just with suitcases and backpacks, and none of their western american goods with them so no cars no you know frying pans anything like that it's just what they had in their bags and they're starting a new life in mongolia and they said 
He said, I'm middle class. I went to college. I have no idea to live a rural kind of life in Mongolia. And so I was very dependent on the people who were there. And so they were humbled very quickly uh, being around people who were not educated the way they were, people who didn't have the same kind of access to material things they had back in the United States. And uh, missionary Tommy, uh, Tom Lynn said this. He said, our dependence on friends like Botka, who was one of his Mongolian friends, he said, our dependence on friends like Botka erased much of the Western arrogance, impatience, and individualism that we unconsciously carry. I thought that was fascinating when I read that. Because he's saying there's something about us that we don't see. We carry these things unconsciously. And so he didn't see this about himself and about us until he went on the mission field and had those things challenged. And the fact is, for us, we are all kind of in the same boat. And when he's talking about arrogance and patience and individualism, this is us. And it's not just us as individuals. It's, it's us collectively as a nation. And unfortunately, it's become more and more the way that we are as a church in the United States. This is from an article uh, called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart, talking about how we're at war with one another in evangelicalism. He said, the root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact upon the Christian faith. And I think we see that. I see that. I see that as I look at the news. I see that as I interact with friends that are in ministry and, and people in churches that have just fallen apart. We feel that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Philippians is so very important for us is because he's talking to a group of people that are not different than we are. He's talking to people with the same kind of sin issues and brokenness issues. Otherwise, he wouldn't be having the conversation with them that he's having with us this morning. And so we're going to look this morning at what Paul says about unity and community. And uh, just so you know that there is an outline for such things. Uh, Targeted blind spot, a lifelong call, and uh, some encouragement. That's where we're going this morning. So first, a a targeted blind spot um, is really what he tells us in verse 14, where he says, where I can see it here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And some of your translations may say complaining there. And uh, it's funny when you read that in the flow of things. Because when you read it in the flow, you realize this comes after a series of very big statements about salvation. So he starts in chapter 2 in verse 5 where he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So in that way, he's saying, Your attitude should be like Jesus, who did this wonderful thing for us in salvation. He humbled himself. And then he says, Jesus was exalted to the highest place and given the name that was above every name. That's pretty big. He's talking about Jesus and his suffering and Jesus and his exaltation. And then the very next thing he says is work out your salvation. And then he says the Holy Spirit, God, is at work in you to will and to act. And so he's talking about these wonderful big truths. And you might expect him to say, well, it's time to head to the mission field. Or it's time to give everything you have to the poor. It's time to do something really big. 
But instead, he says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> and that seems like it's a, not the way that you would follow suit with all these big statements about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, unless uh, not grumbling and not disputing are actually a bigger deal than we think in terms of the community of faith. We live in a culture of complaint, grumbling, disputing, demanding. Apart from Jesus, Christians are really no different. We, we complain and we grumble about everything. I mean, it, it, we, we are in a culture of complaint. Uh, my daughter Catherine and I went to Epcot Center on Friday, and I haven't seen it that packed in a while. It was like shoulder-to-shoulder people, and you should have heard the grumbling and complaining that was going on at Epcot Center. I do not know how my daughter put up with me. It was just <laughs> this crazy day of, of just like, why is there a line here? Why can't we ride what we want to ride? And so we all do this. And if you want to really hear grumbling and complaining, listen to the driver of whatever vehicle you're in, complaining about the slow person in the fast lane. And some of you are nudging your spouse. Don't do that. Okay. Grumbling. Grumbling is, uh, is self-centered and arrogant. A person who grumbles and complains has set him or herself up above other people. Do you want to see a proud person? Look for someone who always talks badly about everyone else, always argues, always to have, have his or her way, is hypercritical of other people, cannot admit their own mistakes, and when they are admitted, just explodes at other people who would dare to say such a thing. But here's the reality, and this is why he's, he's been talking about God's grace to us and salvation, attitude being the same as that of Christ Jesus, is grace silences our self-centeredness. Because the gospel takes us, from the, takes us from the center and puts Jesus back there. So he says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He takes center stage and we are removed from that spot. And so when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we often think he means, well, start following the rules better. But Working out your salvation means first and foremost dealing with the reality that the only hope we ever have for ourselves uh, is, was being saved by someone else because we couldn't save ourselves. The only way possible for us to be saved is God taking the matter in hand himself. And he, he did the whole kit and caboodle. He's the one who saved us completely. You're not just, and so what he does is hand you the packaged gift that you received by faith. You didn't do any of it. You couldn't. He did. And you have to see yourself differently in that light. Work your salvation in of saying, that's where it starts, is I needed someone to rescue me. I'm at the bottom, but I've been elevated to the top. My attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So J.C. Ryle, and this is, I don't think this is on our screen, might be, J, uh, it's, uh, wrote, he wrote this. He said, God knew what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, defiled, yet he loved us. He knows what we will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves us. It's all a gift. Or to say it a different way, God knew we would do what we shouldn't. We would sin. So he sent his son to keep the law that we couldn't. Jesus perfectly obeyed. And to pay the penalty so that we wouldn't. So our sin was given to Jesus. His righteousness, his acceptance, his status before God is given to us. And so when we understand that, it begins to change us. So before he tells us this very key thing about grumbling and complaining and how important that is to the life of the community of faith, he's talked about 
salvation for us. And he says, this, this is what, that's what has to change you. It isn't just a matter of stopping complaining and grumbling. It's realizing what you've been given in Jesus. And that, that is what begins to change you. John Newton had this uh, great little scenario that he had about what it's like to complain. And he says, it's a little bit like this. He said, suppose a man was uh, of, of little means, uh, not a lot of money, not a lot to the world. Let's, uh, but this man had received a great inheritance and he was on his way to New York City to pick it up. So he's in his dilapidated old carriage and he's driving his way down these roads and he's finally almost within sight of the city. It's just a mile away when his old dilapidated carriage falls apart. And so he's stuck there for just a moment and then he starts walking towards New York City. And this is what Newton said. He said, uh, uh, what a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile my dilapidated old carriage is broken. My dilapidated old carriage is broken. He said, why would you be so glum and upset when you have a treasure waiting for you in heaven? Why grumble about the thing that you can't keep that's dilapidated and broken and falling apart when you have these treasures for you in the gospel? And that's what he's telling us in this passage is work out your salvation. What does that mean and how does that lead you to stop complaining and grumbling? And so he tells us not just what to do, do not uh, grumble, do not uh, dispute. But he tells us a little bit underneath that, and that is to work out your salvation. And that is a lifelong call. We see this in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's confusing for a lot of people when they read it because you see the word work and salvation in the same sentence. And we typically, we know that Jesus is the one who's accomplished it. We don't work for it. We receive it by faith. But for a lot of people, this is confusing. What does he mean? Well, I want you to notice what he does not say. What he does not say in these verses is work for your salvation or work toward your salvation. Uh, he's talking about something else. Work out the salvation you already have been given. You already have it. So you're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. You're working from the salvation that Jesus has already accomplished, has given to you, and that you've received by faith. And so what that means for us is, uh, is we have to step into the tenses of salvation for just a second. When, we talk, when the Bible talks about salvation, sometimes it's everything from beginning to end, from the time we come to, from the time of the cross all the way to the time when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everything's made new. But sometimes there's a time stamp on it. There's a time element to it. So some parts of the gospel, when the Bible talks about our salvation, are located in the past. And so the reality is when Jesus was dying on the cross to pay for our sins, that's in the past and he's paid for it. So there's a Oh, what's his name? Michael Scott Horton. Some of y'all like some of you guys in here. I know like to read Michael Scott Horton. Um, when he was asked, I think he was about thirteen or fourteen. He was asked, "When were you saved?" And his response was, "I was saved two thousand years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem." And so what he meant by that is, two thousand years ago, Jesus was paying the penalty for his sins. That's in the past. When we come to faith in Jesus in our lives. Um, for me, that's now a past event from about 30, 35 years ago, right? That was a long time ago for me, but that's in the past for me. 
right? So that's past, the moment of conversion and being brought to faith in Jesus. That's past, and all of that is dealing with sin's penalty and its guilt. Jesus paid the penalty, and when, he forg- when I come to faith in- came to faith in him, he forgave all of it. But there's a present tense that he's talking about. We're going to come to in just a second. There's a future tense as well. That future tense is when we die and we go into the presence of Jesus and all of our sin is removed. It's completely eradicated. So I will never have another sinful desire ever again once I die and I go to be with Jesus. But there are other elements to that future. So I'm going to have a resurrection body at some point. At some point in the future, the new, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and everything's going to be remade. In the present tense is what he's talking about. This is sin. The the past tense is the penalty. Future tense is sin's presence. And in in the present tense, what we're dealing with is sin's pollution, sin's power over us. And what he's telling us is we can grow in that. We can grow in freedom in the gospel. And so when he's talking here about uh, working out our salvation, he's talking about something we're doing in the present to implement what we've been given in the past. Does that make sense? Yes? Nod? Yes? You're good? Okay, good. So um, I was waiting for people like, am I really supposed to nod? Well, I, yeah, that'd be helpful. Um, so let me, let me help you think about it this way. If you've ever had somebody you love who's been in a devastating injury or you've been in one, you know that uh, even though that person's life has been saved, they've got a long road ahead of them. There's, there's therapy. There's rehab. They have to go to the doctor. There might be surgeries involved. There's all kinds of stuff that's taking place with that, and it's a big deal. But their lives have been saved, and now they're, having to, they're growing through the devastation of what took place. Sin is not rules in the sand that we break. The Bible describes sin as a condition of our hearts that is devastating, absolutely devastating. And even though Jesus has saved us, he has declared us righteous before God, he has uh, forgiven us, we've been made alive in him, there's still a lot that has to take place in terms of us growing and dealing with the devastation of sin in our lives. And so when he's talking here about this devastating injury um, of sin, and he's saying, work out what God has been doing. Work out what he started. Bring that into your life. And you say, well, how am I supposed to do that? What, is that, what does that even look like? Um, work out, and a lot of people say what's already there in salvation. Work out what he's already put in. I'm thinking about Christmas coming up, and some of you are already thinking about Christmas presents and those kind of things. And uh, I've been thinking, what can my family get me? So this is uh, a sideways way. Of, don't really give me this. This is just an illustration. Okay. Is, uh, there are these things you can get online now called subscription boxes. Have y'all, any of y'all seen these? So a subscription box is there's a company that will you pay a fee, and you get a new box every month. And whatever you happen to be into, that's what you get in the box. So if you're really into toys, you can get toys. If you're really into shirts, you can get shirts. So the one that has captured my eye is, um, is one called Bespoke. And it's for dudes. It's for guys. And it's for guys who are kind of like they're a little bit outdoorsy, but not really. And they also like the finer things in life, but not really. And uh, so in this box, you get some kind of interesting stuff. So you get, there are a lot of flannel shirts you can get in it. They're, they're like outdoorsy boots that you wear around town. Um, there are knives of a variety of sorts for in the kitchen or if you're on the campsite or just walking around town. And, uh, <laughs> and they have like hatchets and tents, all kinds of stuff. 
And so I thought this would be really cool. Now, one of the fun things about this, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So when you get your bespoke box in the mail, you reach in and you pull out something. It's like, I didn't know I was getting this. This is fantastic. I don't know what that is. And so the first thing you do is you discover what's in the box. And then when you pull it out and start looking at it, you realize, I don't even know what this is. So what does this even do? Right? This is what he's talking about to some degree in this, this passage of Scripture. Because most of us, when we come, in, come to faith in Christ, we think, I'm forgiven. Yay, this is fantastic. Oh, wait, there's more in the box. And so you start pulling things out. Wait, I'm adopted into the family of God? I, I don't even know what that How are you adopted? I've been given the Holy Spirit and their spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. And all. I have no idea any of this was in this box. And so when he's talking about working out our salvation, that's kind of what he's talking about is when we first come to Jesus, Jesus is enough. And then as you grow in Jesus, you realize, whoa, Jesus is more than enough. There's an abundance of goodness here in Jesus, in my salvation and things that he's done. And, and this is really important because, you know, there are some people that when they think about salvation, I had a student years ago with our ministry, and uh, I was in a conversation with him one day about spiritual things and about salvation. He was just talking about kind of coasting in the Christian life. And his response well, was, well, once you get saved, what more is there? And what he meant was that moment of forgiveness. Is I've been completely forgiven. It's like, open the box, man. There's a lot more in here that Jesus has done for us. And he tells us something I think that's also confusing here because he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that throws us off a little bit too because our idea of fear and trembling is maybe groveling, being scared of something, being uh, kind of an improper terror about it. But when the Bible talks about fear, particularly in the New Testament, it's, it's tracing back to the Old Testament. And fear in the Old Testament is a really close synonym to the New Testament word faith. Aspectually, they're very close. And so when you think about the word fear, I want to kind of help you think about that in a different light than just being absolute terror, like God's about to destroy me any second if I don't get my act together. But if he is your priority, he's your first priority, he's your primary concern, he's your anchoring reality. So that even though you're not in heaven right now, he's the driving impetus behind everything that you do, every decision that you make. So uh, this week at a men's Bible study where I was leading, we were talking about this idea of fear. And the the illustration I used was, uh, imagine a, a man who's going on a business trip and uh, he, he goes out to eat with some friends and there happens to be somebody of the opposite sex who's kind of like flirting with him in a restaurant, right? At that moment, if you're a single guy, that might be different than if you're a married person because if you're married, the thing you're thinking about at that point is my spouse. I love my spouse. I'm not even going here with this person. My spouse is my first priority. My spouse is my primary concern. And I'm scared. Um, I have fear of losing the good thing that is my relationship with her. I'm not going to jeopardize that in any way, shape, or form or get anything between us, right? That's the idea of fear that he's talking about is God is your primary concern in the midst of things. So how, how do we do this more in practice? Um, he actually tells us in verse 16 where he says, um, holding fast to the word of life. So God is your foundational concern and the word of God becomes your, fi- your foundational way of thinking. 
about the world. And I'm actually going to use an illustration here, a little prop to help you think about it for just a moment. So I've, I know I've used this before, but I've used it in kind of a different context before. So some of you have seen these. This came when Spencer gifts in the mall used to be a thing. That's <laughs> where this came. Actually, I think it came from Target. So, so this is one of those toys. Where I just called it the pen toy. I don't know if it has a real name, but you, whatever you put into it, that's what comes out the other side, right? So I want you to imagine um, that before a person becomes a Christian, this is this is what they believe, right? So when the Bible talks about faith, the, the it's it's not just a verb, what you do, but quite often it's a noun. So sometimes in a place like Titus chapter uh, in um, Phil- no, oh. I'm just, it's one of the things where you're preaching and you're blank, and you're like, I just blanked on that, I don't know. Preacher, uh, I just got it, I got it, thank you. You looked at me, and I was like, oh, I got it now. It's Jude. So in Jude verse 3, when it's talking about uh, faith, it says that to contend for the faith which was once for all entrusted to the saints. So there he's talking not about your faith, but he's saying the faith, which is, which is a body of information that we believe and we rest on. So in that case, it's a noun. It's something that exists outside of yourself that you come to believe. So in that way, when you come to believe, um, let's say in the United States, the majority of us believe something called expressive individualism. You know, we put ourselves first um, in all things, and that's, that's an ingrained cultural belief that we all share. All right, we're, we're unconscious of it until we go to Mongolia. We're unaware of it until there's something that happens that we're like, oh, wow, this is really a part of my life. But when a person becomes a Christian, and let's say that this one represents God's word, is uh, the old belief system is removed, but it still has left its stamp. And so the gospel comes in, and all of a sudden it's beginning to rewrite parts of you. You got that? The things that you believed. So it challenges the individualism. It challenges the idolatries of money and power and prestige. It challenges all of these things. But in your life, you can still feel their pull. But over time, the desire is for uh, the landscape of your life to now become more and more like Christ. And the way that takes place is by the word of holding fast to the word of God to say, that's going to be what shapes me. I believe this in every and any situation. This is now what I'm going to believe and what I'm going to trust and rest in. Does that make sense? So the word, when he says fast here, uh, you know, hold fast, the word came to my mind, uh, fasten. I'm fastened to Jesus. I am, I am held fast to him above everything else. And so part of working out your salvation is working out all the things that don't look like God's word, the things that I believe that I should no longer believe. And he says, this takes a lifetime. This is generation to generation, right? So here he's talking to the Philippians about grumbling and disputing. He might as well be talking to us in the 21st century. It's the same discussion because human nature has not changed. And for you and me, as we are living in this life, we're in the present tense of salvation. Sin has not been removed yet. So we still have this struggle with it. And so it's a continual struggle for us. He he uses the present tense saying this struggle is always in the present tense. And that's hard. But in this passage, he's given us some very important uh, encouragement. So look in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit 
Holy Spirit's role in our lives. God has already been, talk, been talked about in, in uh, verse 1-6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. So God began the work. He's going to end it. In the meantime, he says, God's at work in you. You're not in this by yourself. God is helping you. And specifically, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. There's God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you can read about these three persons of the Trinity in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and if you want to read through Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to, the 13, 1 to 14. The, Holy, the Trinity is talked about specifically with their roles uh, that, they perform, that they play in our salvation. So the Father planned and chose, and he adopts us. He's the one who planned all of salvation. Jesus is the one who accomplished our salvation. He redeemed us. It's his blood that was shed. He's the one who took on flesh. And the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who implements this into our lives and gives us the power. He gives us the experience of it. So Jesus sacrificed himself to give us the privilege of being God's children, but the Holy Spirit gives us the experience of it. So we, in the Trinity, we receive the Father's love, Jesus' status, and the Holy Spirit's power. Okay, Christian theologian J.I. Packer wrote this about the Trinity. He said, The Christian's life in all of its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Holy Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from him, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers or no congregations at all. And so he's saying the Holy Spirit, God began with the Holy Spirit. He carries us on through with the Holy Spirit. And in the middle, he's with us in the midst of this. So the Holy Spirit finances this and he, uh, he curates it for us. So 2016, my family went to Harry Potter World. And uh, we had a former student with us in RUF who was working at an engineer at Universal Studios. And so he, as a gift to us, he wanted to give us Harry Potter World. And uh, who am I to turn down Harry Potter World? So, um, so he, uh, he planned for us to come. And as the day we drove there, he said, meet us in this parking lot. It's like, okay, we'll meet him in the parking lot. So it was outside of Universal Studios. We met him in the parking lot. He crawled into the front seat. Everybody else piled in the back. We drove to the turnstile where you have to pay for parking. He just flashed his credentials, and we drove right through. It was like, it was awesome, free parking. And so he pulled us into the parking space. We went through this little, like, like, moving sidewalk kind of thing. It was fun. I was like, oh, this is really fun. We went to the front of the park, and he said, no, don't go through these gates. Come over with me. So we went to the special window, and he flashed his credentials, and we went in free admission. It was fantastic. And then he didn't leave us there. He walked us all the way back to Diagon Alley, like right at the center of Harry Potter World. It was kind of new. It got the big dragon. It's kind of this really interesting area. He walked us through, not just into the queue line. He, we bypassed the queue line and went to the very front. And he just was like, hey, I'm, I'm one of the engineers. And so we just walked right into the ride without waiting at all. And I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. Kyle is like the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? He began it. He's going to finish it. He's curating the whole thing in the middle. And we, we did the math on this, and he, sh he saved us a college tuition that day, <laughs> taking us. So not only has he financed, uh, but he's curated the entire salvation, our entire salvation, everything. So the Holy Spirit, he's saying, is, is with you. 
to get you where you need to be. He's at work in the lives of God's people to bring about our, God's restorative, life-giving purpose for us. He gives us life. It's called life in the Spirit. We're born in the Spirit. He makes us more like Christ. That's fruit of the Spirit. He changes our character. He gives us the ability to minister in the name of Christ in power through the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is empowering all of these things for us. C.S. Lewis said, The Holy Spirit is at work in God's people to make us more like Christ. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. This is a great encouragement. And it's a great encouragement when you're in the middle. When you're in the middle of the struggle, right? In the present tense. So this is what it looks like. Um, yesterday, I was ironing, getting ready for this sermon. I was ironing the shirt, as a matter of fact. I was ironing for this, uh, I, was, I was ironing, I was, I was thinking about the sermon, I was thinking about other stuff. And uh, I don't know, I was listening to some kind of international music thing, which is a weird thing. And uh, so right in the middle of ironing, this memory came back of something where I got hurt. And I got, and it was an event where I, when I think about it, I still get angry. And it's hard to get out of that moment. And some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about, where you're ruminating and you're playing it over in your head. And you tell yourself what you wish you would have said. And then you're telling yourself, I ever see that person, here's what I'm going to say. And so I find myself grumbling and complaining. Imaginary. These people, you know, these people are not in my life or anything anymore. It's just I'm grumbling and complaining in my soul. Now, sometimes that feels really good. It's like you, you just run with it. And I do that sometimes. And that's, that's not healthy. That's not good. But yesterday, I'm thinking, I've got to preach this sermon tomorrow. And I want my mind to be thinking about this and praying about this. But I found myself stuck in that moment. And when I'm thinking, when I'm grumbling and I'm complaining and I'm disputing and I'm fighting and I'm grumbling at God about these situations, there's no way I can pray. There's no way I can commune with the Father. There's no way I can delight in Christ. There's no way I can prepare for this and for my mind to be set in the right place. And so I just said, Holy Spirit, would you come and just remove this from me? And the reason was I knew I couldn't do it. I've tried so many times. And it's gotten to the point where I'm just like, Holy Spirit, would you take this and just put that somewhere else? From the... And lo and behold, the Holy Spirit met me right at that very moment. And he said, listen to this guy's voice. He didn't say that out loud, but you know, that's, what, that's how he answered the prayer. Is all of a sudden I heard the guy who was singing in some other language I didn't even hear. And I, and I began to pray and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for people of other cultures and the music. Thank you for that guy's crystal clear singing voice. Thank you that we have access to things. And I just started praying prayers of gratitude. Now, that was the Holy Spirit. That's not me. I'm just, I'm not normally this kind of like grateful person praying all the time. But that was the Holy Spirit stepping into the present struggle to help me. Do you think he would help you? I think so. What do you struggle with? What do you grumble and complain about? What's, what, what's the trigger for you where it's, I'm grumbling, I'm complaining, I can't get out of it. And how do you invite the Holy Spirit into that? You pray. You pray and say, I can't do it. I need for you to step into this in the midst of this. Would you please do it? And like we talked about fastening, fast, hold fast to the word of life. We may begin to play over scriptures in our head and think about what he's done. Because he's very clear in this passage. He who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion, and in the meantime, he will be with you. So, 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Some of you remember this. I watched it again yesterday, and I got, I got teary-eyed watching this. Uh, there was a, a British runner by the name of Derek Redman, and he was running in the 400 meters in a, quali- in a qualifying round, so I think the semifinals. He'd already had the best time in the previous round, and people are looking saying, this guy's going to win it. So the, the gun fires, they start to run, and just a few steps in, Derek tore his hamstring. And you can see it. It's on, it's on the video. And he just stumbles and falls down. And he gets himself up because it's the Olympics. And he wants to finish the race. And so he starts hobbling. You know, and I don't know if you've ever torn like a tendon. You're not walking fast. You're not running. But he's there kind of like hopping, trying to make his way around the track in the 400 meters. And uh, he gets just a few steps into it. And all of a sudden, uh, these... Uh, People with gurneys are showing up, like, get on, get on. He's like, no, no, it's the Olympics. I want to finish this. And so he's making his way around the track, and the crowd's cheering him on. And then he gets, you know, halfway to the finish line, and he's just not going to be able to make it. There's no way. So he's, finally, the pain is caught up to him, and, and he is just starting to sob. And you see this larger man run over to where he is. And then the words come on the screen, Derek's father, Jim. And Jim takes his, his son's arm around his shoulder, wraps his hand around him. And so he's helping his son as his son hobbles. And the fascinating thing as I was watching this is all the people at the gurneys are coming over to try to say, put him on here, put him on here. And he's like, no, my son's going to finish this race. Get away. My son's going to finish this race. He wants to finish it and I'm going to help him. And so they're going all the way down the track. He's completely leaning on his dad. He could never do it his own, on his own. And when they get to the finish line, there's just tears and sobbing, and the crowd is just cheering. And that's this passage. That's the gospel. And somewhere along the way, we realize, I can't do it on my own. But my Father has met me in my brokenness. And he calls me to work that out. What does it mean that running this race, he's going to meet me, he's going to help me, and I'm going to be able to do it because I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing it with him, his aid and his help. Let me pray for us. I probably would have given up a long time ago on this whole faith thing if you hadn't been there the whole way. Thank you. And there are so many other people in this room that... uh, they felt the same way. It's because of you. And there are other people in this room, Father, I know, who are thinking, I, I don't think I could start this thing because I can't finish it. I pray, Lord, that you would be with all of us and give us that assurance that you meet us in the midst of our brokenness. And for those who are in here this morning who may doubt your very goodness, that they would hear people who have been helped, who have been met by you in our brokenness, who have had all of our sins forgiven, who have had your Spirit's help and are assured that we will get home to be with you because you love us and you desire that. Would you bless us now as we sing this last song? Would you sing it? Would you receive it as a prayer from our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.